Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining us on Old Boys Club this week. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. I love your podcast. Thank you so much. Are you, you're in lockdown as well as us? Yeah, but I'm a Victorian, so I'm absolutely, totally, thoroughly used to being in lockdown. Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club. A podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a silly question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. My name is Matilda Bosley. And that was former Federal MP Julia Banks. Now, Banks was part of the Liberal Party back when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister. And in 2016, she decided to run for a seat and won. She was the only Liberal candidate to actually win back a seat for the Liberal Party that election. So she was kind of a big deal. But then during her term, the Liberal Party had a leadership spill. Julia calls it a coup. And Scott Morrison took over from Malcolm Turnbull as the Prime Minister. Shortly after that, Julia started speaking out about the bullying of women within the Liberal Party, and she released a statement saying that she was not going to run again in the next federal election. From there, things escalated pretty quickly, and before her term was even up, Julia Banks decided to quit the Liberal Party altogether and sit in Parliament with the independents. This is a process called uh, moving to the crossbench. And it's fair to say when talking about her former Liberal colleagues, Julia Banks doesn't really hold punches. Now, two Two years since finishing her term and leaving politics, Julia has once again made headlines after coming out with a tell-all book exposing the sexism in politics, specifically the culture that exists within the current Liberal Party. And just a content warning, this interview that we do with her does discuss sexual assault. Now, we wanted to speak to Julia Banks for a couple of reasons. I mean, everything that we just said before, but also because she didn't actually start her political career in the kind of typical way. She didn't join like a young Labor, young Liberal group in university, then, you know, move her way up into a political party, work her way through the ranks. She instead actually spent most of her life totally outside of politics working as a successful commercial lawyer. But wait, let's let Julia explain. That's right. So I was like in normal human land for most of my life, yeah. Um, so I, I'd i observed politics. I'd been an observer of politics, but um, I, hadn't, I hadn't engaged in student politics. I wasn't a career politician by any stretch of the imagination. I'd spent most of my life working on my career, raising my two kids, doing that whole, you know, my husband works full time as well. So doing that whole thing. And then come 2015, um, the Liberal Party, certainly in Victoria, were asking for more women. And, you know, I saw good moderates there like Malcolm Turnbull and Kelly O'Dwyer. And um, I thought, well, I might just join the Liberal Party. And this was in 2015 and uh, never in a million years did I think that just over a year later I'd be elected to a seat and nor did the Liberal Party actually. So, yeah. Was there a moment though when you were growing up when you first became politically engaged? Um, I've always been a advocate for gender equality always that it just from as far back as I can remember and I can't think of a particular moment except to say that I came from a very um, modest background both my parents worked mum used to get mocked for working because that was in the era where it wasn't fashionable for a woman to work and you know there were always financial struggles in our household and I remember mum and I talk about this in the book, and I was very young and I remember mum counting the takings of, 
um, her job where she worked and uh, crying. And it was obviously during a time of financial struggle for my family and just instilling in me this belief that, you know, this is what an education will give you. It will give you independence and always, always, always be independent, at least financially independent, never depend on a man. And, you know, they were big words for a little kid. I was only, I think I was only about seven or eight at the time. Um, But I do remember taking my kids when they were very little to their first trip to Canberra and walking around Parliament House and looking in the women in Parliament section. This would have been about 15 years ago now. And, uh, thinking then, wow, we've still got a long way to go, haven't we? Like there was this sort of history of the suffragette movement and early female politicians, yeah. You mentioned that gender equality was one of the big drivers getting you into politics. I think for a lot of people, especially maybe people our age, our listenership, I guess that sort of seems strange then that you'd gravitate towards the Liberal Party because there is such a perception that the Liberal Party isn't necessarily the party that is the one fighting for gender equality, that is the one that, you know, treats women amazingly. Can you explain to us how you sort of figured that out in your head, why you actually decided that the Liberal Party was the way to go? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess first coming from a business background, but um, also with Malcolm Turnbull in the leadership. Um, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, is an avowed feminist and he's also been almost from when it wasn't fashionable to be, uh, if to the extent that it could be fashionable, always a supporter of multiculturalism. Um, and I think seeing good moderates like that in the party, the party's principle, which has changed, which differentiates itself from the Labor Party, is um, the party of free speech. So it has in the past said, we're the broad church, we're the broad church, you know, so you can speak out on issues that are important to you. But that was once you got inside the party um, and in terms of where the party is, this concept that you could speak out, you could speak out if you're from the right wing Christian conservative pace of the party, but um, to speak out about progressive views, it, it was... Uh, it was frowned upon, really, by those factions. Um, for example, my strong advocacy for marriage equality was one that comes to mind that really was interesting. I think that re- leads really nicely, Julia, into a question I have, which was something that we talked about on the show when we brought up your interview on 7.30 two weeks ago. We were trying to very quickly canvas your political history and we mentioned a uh, how it, like a, a controversial, a thing that you were known for that was a bit controversial, which was a statement that you you gave in response to questions about the government's uh, current policy on Centrelink, the Centrelink allowance, and you said that you know you think that you'd be able to live on forty dollars a day, and you you write about this really well in the book and talk about how like this unfortunate statement followed you, even though you didn't truly believe in it and you tried to correct the record later. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but I'd also love to know whether that moment illustrated something that you're saying in po- that happens in in politics and, and what that you experienced in the Liberal Party, which was having to uh, toe out the party line and feeling this pressure to to reiterate the party line even if you didn't totally agree with it. Could you talk about that experience and and what that reflected? Mm-hmm. In the party, yeah. yeah. So when um, I, I I did this radio interview, I didn't actually. Um, it was 
we all make mistakes, right? And I, I certainly don't believe people could live on that. The words came out wrong. And uh, and I'd no sooner left the radio station than, uh, you know, the media went nuts over it. And um, it was like when you think about all the mistakes and all the stupid things male politicians say, I tell the story because I want to demonstrate the difference. So I went out straight away and corrected it and said, no, 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 I don't. I believe in a robust welfare system. I do not believe um, anyone can live on that. And I believe, you know, New Start. I, I didn't go that far then because of the party line thing, but I, you know, I certainly do believe New Start needed a review. Um, and from my point of view, I tried so hard to correct it, but it, it's just like it couldn't be corrected. And I think if a woman makes a mistake, it's completely and always often amplified. And then this story got even more legs because um, uh, one journalist then trawled through my um, register of interests um, and then said, oh, look at her, you know, she's got, you know, this house and she owns that and and uh, then I was, you know, portrayed as the rich bitch sort of thing. So it was it was just like a never-ending sort of saga that just kept going on and on. I actually ultimately went back on the program and said, no, like, let me be clear, um, but still occasionally people will call me a rich bitch. <laughs> yeah. Something that's always really struck me about the challenge of being in a political party. And I'm somebody who has has been in, I, I like did student politics and then I went and worked in federal politics and I hated working in federal politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've always really struggled with the idea of political parties because I'm somebody who is quite outspoken when it comes to issues. Do you think that there maybe, I don't know if you experienced this or whether you think that other people have experienced this in politics. Do you think that there is a pressure to compromise on your values to uphold a political party's position or uh, success at the next election? Well, I think um, certainly under Malcolm Turnbull's leadership, you know, the the core principle of the Liberal Party is individual enterprise and being able to have respectful debate about different issues. That is the core principle that differentiates them. And I went in with that core principle and never compromised on it. I think what we've seen this year, and certainly under Morrison's leadership, is that it's the complete opposite of that. And we've seen Liberal women, for example, totally not speak out. Um, The ones who did just before the coup, he's very good at controlling the narrative that he wants. And the quid pro quo program was almost on from the get-go so that they would, you know, convey the narrative that he wanted them to convey. Looking back on what's happened this year, how does it feel sort of seeing someone like Craig Kelly who managed to step out of line, not even the party line, the science line, um, (laughs) and seemingly sort of received a couple of stern words from the Prime Minister compared to how you sort of feel like you were put in these positions? How does it feel seeing his experience versus your experience when it comes to who's allowed to speak out or not? Yeah, well, that's a really good question because I think you can trace it all back to Morrison's leadership and certainly what he thinks of women. So when Craig Kelly speaks out, he defended him at the National Press Club, said, you know, he's a good member for Hughes, rah, rah, rah. When Julia Banks speaks out, which was 
by the way, only six words. It was in my statement when my initial statement where I said I wasn't going to recontest the next election. I was going to sit there and fake it. I was going to stay until the election in the back bench, but continue to make speeches and advocate for issues that were important to me. My only other alternative was to quit and trigger a by-election. I wasn't going to do that. But right from the get-go with me, because A, I didn't vote for him, then in that statement, the traitorous words were when I called out the bad behaviour across the body politic and I said, and from within my own party. So with those words... And the fact that he believed that I might out him in relation to his role in the coup, he his strategy in terms of dealing with me was to silence me in some form. So he basically, that's when I learned subsequently that his office had backgrounded the press to say that I'd had just a, a, a sort of, I was an, an emotional wreck. Um, he'd uh, elicited an agreement from me not to speak to the media And then his first press conference just continued or harnessed that narrative when he said, all I care about is Julia's welfare. That's all where, you know, it's been a torrid time for her. That's what I'm doing. I'm reaching out to her. I'm calling, calling Julia, Julia. And it was, it was chillingly similar to the gaslighting and victim blaming in obviously very different circumstances against Brittany Higgins. So I was this you know, weak petal in the corner. Uh, Brittany Higgins was confused. You know, um, it was just, it was quite extraordinary. And at the time when I was watching him on television, I, I thought, why is he saying it like that? And then, of course, I didn't go away. So then the, what I call the sexist spectrum, I was taken down at each moment with different types of backgrounding to meet, make the, you know, ambitious, bitch um that sort of thing so it was it's quite is and it was all underpinned by a very sort of rat cunning sexism you mentioned just before that uh morrison was worried that you would out his role in the coup can you tell us about that what what do you mean by that well it's clear to everybody that um to everybody in canberra to most insiders that morrison wasn't this accidental prime minister who you know, suddenly appeared. His people, his men were certainly working, working very hard during the coup. Um, So in terms of him being outed in relation to the coup, there was that, but there was also, would I out him as a bully? Because from, from the three months of when he took over the leadership until I announced my resignation, during that three month period, he took me through this whole sexist spectrum backgrounding the media, saying I was a weak petal, and then it just got legs. I, I wasn't going anywhere. But he's trick, he's, he, he's found himself in a very tricky situation because he needed my vote. He needed my vote because it was a one-seat in a one-seat majority. But at the same time, he wanted me to shut up, right? He wanted me out. So, you know, and some people were saying I was treating me with kid gloves. I... I dispute that. He was basically prepared to trash my personal and professional reputation by conveying this narrative about me, you know, as a way of silencing me. So, for example, he said to me, look, you know, and this offer had been made by other ministers before him, we can take you away from all of this and all expenses paid, go to New York. I'm not going to New York. Well, I'll speak to Bill, as in Bill Shorten, the opposition leader, 
and try and get you a parliamentary pair, which is to rebalance the votes in Parliament, which would have effectively meant unlimited sick leave, which no doubt would have been conveyed as mental health leave, which would have then fitted that narrative. And I said, I'm not sick. So I wasn't going away. And with me not going away, it just sort of increased that that positioning. One thing that I guess a few people might be wondering is you've mentioned that a lot of your experience was really based in gender and discrimination because of gender. What would you say to people who are saying, oh, well, you were leaving the party, you were hurting, you know, the new prime minister's position, like, of course, he's going to try and sort of protect himself like that. Like, what what makes this not just political, but also sexist as well? Well, what, what made it sexist was Morrison's values. I believe he's I believe he's he is viscerally sexist. Uh, you know, he he constantly reminds us that he um, loves his wife and daughters and widowed mother, but that's not exactly a novelty. Most men I know love their wives unless they're divorced or and daughters and partners and mothers. Um, and I think beyond that traditional domestic scene, he has a very sexist approach, and we. We don't need to just look at my experience of him during that three months, but rather the experience and his reaction and response to the events of 2021 with following Brittany Higgins, the cascade of events. There's not one male name that has been named in the last six months that's suffered any consequences as a result of Morrison's leadership. Um, We've had all these projections about announcements we've had you know him consulting his wife to know how to feel and empathize you know we've been told the march for justice people who who marched for justice around the country we were told they weren't met with bullets it was just this whole whole cascade of events and that i think is what makes it a very gendered environment and from my point of view to any young or any woman contemplating entering politics I would say pick your leader carefully the leader is important the leader defines the culture and if you find yourself in a situation where that leader is so diametrically opposed to your values often the only alternative is to get out and you know, I thought I could stay because I knew what the reaction would be. But my, you know, I realised after three months of what I went through, which was, as I've described in the book, the most gut-wrenching, distressing period of my life, because in many, at many times I felt completely powerless. I mean, I was challenging the most powerful man in the country and there was all this backgrounding going on. It was, it was a very oppressive time and quite often the best way to you know, address that is to get out. And that applies across the sectors, I think. What was the reaction from the Liberal Party when you made your resignation speech? I know you spoke in the book about the kind of half hour or so straight away afterwards of that was pretty tumultuous. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, it's, it takes up a whole chapter in the book. Though, just <laughs> 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 it was, um, look, it was pretty... Um, it was very intense and I knew I knew there would be a reaction but I certainly didn't think that Morrison would react the way he did, which was, you know, he basically didn't pick up the phone <laughs> to speak to me. Um, I certainly um, 
did not tell him beforehand because of the experience I'd had three months earlier where I was trying to do the professional corporate thing. You know, you tell your wife, your family, your, your husband, wife, partner, your family, your constituents, your supporters and your boss and, you you know, then go public. I didn't do that with him that time because I knew that it would all just be backgrounded or I'd be stymied or, you know, um, stop from doing it. You mentioned that the three months between you saying you weren't going to contest your seat at the next election to when you resigned as an independent were really tough. What was it like after you resigned um, from the Liberal Party and became an independent on the crossbench? What what was life like after that? Yeah, so it it was quite quite extraordinary. And, and then there's another period too when I ran as an independent um, subsequently. It was... It, yeah, it was quite amazing because the, that major constraint on my voice had gone. It, it's not to say that the backgrounding and the abuse went away. It didn't go away. In fact, in many aspects, it, it increased and it became more intense and it certainly became very intense during the campaign. But the the good side of running as an independent for me certainly was the respectability between and the collegiality between the other independents. As an independent, you have a direct interface with your community. You you consult with your constituents, which is what politics should be about, and you fight for what you believe in and you vote on the basis, always on the basis of what you believe in and what your constituents are advocating for. One thing I wanted to... um to wrap up, one thing that I was really interested in and when I was watching other interviews that you did that you spoke about, you mentioned in the book that you did have this experience where a senior cabinet minister, um, you know, allegedly did make an unwanted sexual advance against you. You've mentioned in other interviews that there was some specific reasons about why you chose not to name that cabinet minister. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, that chapter, To Speak or Not to Speak, is has, contains a number of anecdotes about sexual misconduct and other sort of related matters and why women don't speak up. And my my firm view on that is every woman knows that, you know, the consequences can be different, um, but every woman knows that if you do speak up or if you provide extra details or go public with certain details, that that can have consequences for you. It can, you know, in this country we have terrible defamation laws, you know, um, we've got non-disclosure agreements, we've got all sorts of things that are preventative or prohibitive. But it's the main reason is I just think we've got to stop putting this burden on women to tell these uncomfortable stories. We we really have to stop putting this burden on women. And, you know, I, I knew that there would be speculation and rumour and all the rest of it. And, you know, I've also heard the argument, oh, well, you put all the men in it if you don't name him. Again, putting the burden on women and to those who say not all men, we women know that not all men are misogynists or sexists or bullies. We work with them, we live with them, we're married to them, we love them. You know, we know that not all men, but what we importantly know is that 98% of women do not make these stories up. They, they just don't make them up. 
And so that's where the onus, I believe, is on the employer and the leader to actually do something. And that uh, about it in terms of setting up a structure or a whistleblower hotline or any number of things. And I, I think what's the most disturbing thing is that we've seen so many names already this year in 2021 and where they got to and why not and that's because Morrison is the leader and he you know he's he's called all these inquiries we just heard that he's going to have one hour optional training uh for for MPs which is laughable um so I just think that until we get a leader who is committed to just coming out and saying, okay, there's a problem here. This is what we need to do. You need to step down. You need to step down. This is what we're going to do. We're going to introduce a hotline. We're going to do all of these things rather than this faffing about, honestly. Has that minister or anyone else from the Liberal Party reached out to you about this incident since you went public talking about it? I've had no one from the Liberal Party reaching out to me in that sense. The only Liberal Party's sort of commentary, and I'm sure they've been appointed by Morrison, has come from the women. You know, Sarah Henderson came out and said I was manipulated by the Labor Party. Katie Allen said, not in my experience, and oh, it's a pity she didn't tell Malcolm Turnbull at the time. Well, that's not the point of the story. The, the point of the book is about the entrenched, toxic workplace that is defined by the leader, particularly as we've seen events come out under his watch. Now, if you if you do a comparison, when Malcolm Turnbull was in power, um, when the Barnaby Joyce issue came out, as much as he's the Liberal Prime Minister and doesn't really have power or control over the Nationals deputy, he ran that press conference and effectively Barnaby Joyce stood down, you know, with the expenses scandal. He took accountability and he changed the expenses system so that it was like corporate, so it could only be work-related expenses. So you just need, that's what I'm talking about in terms of accountability. It's so important. And with Morrison, we've seen this lack of accountability. We saw it with the bushfires. We've seen it with the vaccine rollout. It's all the state's fault, the bushfires, I don't hold a hose. And then, you know, gender equality, oh, we're having this inquiry and that inquiry and, you know, the Canberra bubble story was human frailty um, and then the gaslighting and victim blaming. I think that all comes from somewhere and it comes from their his values. So my final question for you, Julia, is what do you think of the way the current Liberal National Coalition government is going under Scott Morrison's leadership? And I would add to that, if I can tack on a point, a lot of our listeners, and I mean Every week we get messages saying, is Scott Morrison going to win the next election? <laughs> and I would love to know your opinion. Do you think that despite the public reception of the current government and some of the uh, things they've done this year, do you think that they are still going to win the next election? Well, I've never been really good at those predictions like <laughs> most people. Um you know what I want at the next election? I want a group of socially progressive, centrist, independent MPs, men or women, preferably women, to balance the numbers out, to hold the balance of power. That's what I need. I, I think our government, our part, federal parliament, needs a circuit breaker between what is now a duopoly of power between the major parties. 
So it's, I think we need a hung parliament or a minority government, but with the, we definitely need the balance of power being held on the crossbench. I think that is what will make a difference. We saw it with that window where we had the balance of power for the six months that I was an independent MP and Karen Phelps was elected as the member for Wentworth. We brought in the Medivac legislation. We fought very constructively for climate change action and for an integrity commission. I, I believe we'd be there now, sadly, if if we were if we'd had that balance of power, and that's that's what my hope and vision is for the next election. You do. I just want to clarify one point. You've said a number of times, you know, under the Morrison administration, when the leadership changed, but. Are you saying that there sort of was no sexist culture or was no culture where women, you know, potentially weren't valued to the same degree under Malcolm Turnbull? Like, I guess I'm questioning whether sexism started in the Liberal Party when Morrison came into power. I guess how what was that experience before the spill? That's a really good question, because one thing that a lot of people don't understandably understand is that when you run it when you first run as a candidate you have very little to to do with the federal federal arm of the party it's all driven from the state arm and the sexism and misogyny and the attacks I received from the get-go during the the pre-selection process and throughout was was pretty extraordinary and that was driven from the Victorian state division On the other side of the 2016 election, obviously Malcolm Turnbull's the Prime Minister and in many ways there was sort of this buffer because I was elected and I was in the Federal Parliament. Just to close, how have you felt after the books come out? You know, you say that you feel like your reputation was damaged, you feel like, you know, you had all these labels put on you, you finally had your chance to say your piece and speak. How has this last couple of weeks been? Well, I... I did have a degree of trepidation because I knew they would come after me uh, again, but um, I was sort of ready for them at this time and uh, I knew to expect what we saw in terms of women saying, well, you know, she's manipulated by the, it's not in my experience and she's manipulated by the the, um, Labor Party, et cetera, et cetera. But from my perspective, I'm glad the book is out there because I initially didn't really intend to write a book. Um, I took a gap year, uh, but it ended up being a gap six months. Um, so many people were telling me I should write a book because people want to know that inside story. And I wanted the book to align to my experience. I, I'd had 20 plus years in corporate and legal sectors and only you know, just under five years in politics. And I, I thought, but I have to tell the p- politics side of the story because it was an amplification of everything that had happened in the corporate world times about 50 and and that's our centre of power. Like that's where the change needs to happen. Anyway, during that gap year I decided the one thing I clearly and always want to do is to advocate for gender equal representation, particularly in our parliaments, in our in leadership positions for women. And the book is part of that. And I hope it achieves something in that regard. But more importantly, I hope all women on their leadership journey take at least one thing out of that book that can help them. That was always my intention. And I hope the book achieves that. 
And if you'd like to read the book Power Play, Breaking Through Bias, Barriers and Boys Club, you can go buy it from your local bookshop or we're going to be doing a giveaway on our Instagram. Are we? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so you can go over to our Instagram page at Old Boys Club Pod to win two copies there. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Thanks so much. <laughs> And that's the episode. Our Instagram is at Old Boys Club Pod if you want to follow us and be a part of the book giveaway of Powerplay by Julia Banks. Now, full disclosure, we were not at all paid to do this interview or promote these books. Uh, they were just given to us very kindly by Julia's publisher so we could give some away to you guys. But if you were in the mood for financially supporting the podcast, you can always <laughs> head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. we got to make up for the lack of our political donors somehow we're getting (laughs) nothing from these people Now, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Burrawong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Now, the theme music for our podcast is by the fantastic Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced, mixed and edited by Anthony Furchie and Alex Tai. And thank you again to Julia Banks for joining us. I'm Matilda Bosley. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. And this and this is Old Boys Club. <laughs> it's so difficult when we're on Zencaster, Justine. This lockdown is fucking up our podcast vibe. <laughs> Can I just say how fucked it is that we recorded this two lockdowns ago? And now the script is still <laughs> the script is still relevant. It's still relevant. We recorded this in lockdown four, and it's lockdown <laughs> six, and no one could even tell the difference because we're still talking <laughs> that lockdown. That's so messed up, Justine. <laughs> <laughs>